Dieting started with questionable eating advice from an English poet, evolved to incorporate chewing techniques to make you crap less, and really went off the rails with the invention of amphetamines, cigarettes, and laxatives. Hey everyone, I'm Natalie, and this is the bizarre history of dieting. And who better to start with than the first celebrity diet icon, Lord Byron. Pale, thin, and obsessed with losing weight, Byron worked hard at maintaining his image as the quintessential romantic poet. His go-to slimming tactics? Wearing layers of clothes to sweat, staving off hunger by smoking cigars, and eating flattened potatoes soaked in vinegar. People ate this up, and young women everywhere tried to emulate him. But one thing the romantic period didn't romanticize was carbs. Nearly 200 years before keto in 1825, a French lawyer and politician, John Anton... Anton? Anton? I don't think my mouth works that way. Jean Anthelme Briasavarin. Nearly 200 years before keto in 1825, a French lawyer and politician, Jean Anton Briand Savaron, finally recommended the first low carb diet. And his advice was actually pretty solid. In his popular book, Physiologie du Goût, he wrote the cause of obesity is too much starch and flour based foods. And he recognized people should eat in moderation and exercise. Wait a second, that's actually really good advice. Then why are we still coming up with crazy diet trends today? Well, it might be because his book also included lines like, a dinner without cheese is like a pretty woman with only one eye. In the US, things were a little more uptight with a minister named Sylvester Graham who lectured to crowds about the advantages of a vegetarian diet and the evils of alcohol. I'm drunk! Not only was Graham basically the first wellness Instagrammer, he's also responsible for another dietary innovation, the Graham Cracker. What about these as healthy? They're literally cookies. The idea behind the cracker and his whole diet was to help repress sexual urges. No tongues. So yes, we can thank Graham for laying the foundation for s'mores, but let's not forget the whole point of these celibacy crackers. It's good for keeping down the urges. You know how grocery aisles are packed with gossip magazines filled with personal diet tips from the stars? Well, it was like that back in the 1860s too. But instead of gossip magazines, it was pamphlets. And instead of taking advice from famous people, our great-grandparents got diet tips from an undertaker. Specifically, William Banting, who wrote about how he lost 46 pounds through a protein-rich, high-fat, low-carb diet that included wine at every meal, even breakfast. His diet was so well-known, it became its own verb. Joe's drinking has really gotten out of control since he started Banting, but he looks great. Wait, I know what you're thinking. All these diets seem a little too mainstream. I'm looking for something that will let me grind my food into liquefied gruel while ensuring I never poop again. Well, you're in luck. Enter Fletcherism. The early 1900s diet promoted intense chewing, as in chew your food at least a hundred times until it becomes a liquid and all trace of taste has disappeared. Then spit out whatever's left. Mm. Who? A key sign of success in this diet was a lack of bowel movements. Fletcher himself bragged about going number two once every two weeks. Ugh, 
The turn of the century and the Industrial Revolution brought a massive shift in not only who was dieting, but how they were doing it. Before, being overweight was mostly a middle and upper class problem, but working class people were now moving to cities. They had a little more cash and were eating fewer fresh foods. Couple that with the arrival of semi-modern medicine, and you've got the perfect recipe for the quick fix diet fad. Open a magazine anywhere in the US in the early 1900s, and you'd see ads for diet pills and drugs, and some were just plain dangerous, like loaded with small amounts of arsenic dangerous. But if you didn't want to choke down dangerous pills to fit into your flapper dress, there were alternatives, like cigarettes. <laughs> Lucky Strike started an ad campaign encouraging people to smoke instead of reaching for that cupcake. And if smoking wasn't your bag, you could have tried this chewing gum that's laced with laxatives. That rolls off while you chew. As the early 20th century brought a wave of scientific and industrial progress, some weight loss trends seemed downright medieval. This led to a whole mess of mechanical, vibrating contraptions that supposedly slimmed you down without you having to move at all. Then, in the 50s, diet pills made a huge comeback. They were known as Mother's Little Helpers and filled the medicine cabinets of mid-century housewives everywhere. Most of the pills were a mix of amphetamines and other questionable chemicals, and some people died from using them. By 1970, 8% of all prescriptions in the US were for amphetamines, but amphetamines had a few problems. Diet culture is a really valuable topic to be raising awareness around because it shows up in industries like fitness where we're supposed to be teaching people healthy habits, but we can be unknowingly teaching them that foods are good and bad or teaching them to earn their meal or that, you know, there's such a thing as clean eating, that certain foods are clean and other foods are dirty. And I think the words we use are really powerful. So it's really important especially to be teaching healthcare providers and fitness folks to use different language and educate people in a different way. I'm especially grateful to this up and coming topic of diet culture because I'm raising two little children and it's really great to be using different language with them in the house so that I can raise the next generation to be more aware of how we look at what we eat and how we look at our bodies. This is Dr. Aaron Nitschke. This is Dr. Darian Parker. This is Decoding Diet Culture. Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Decoding Diet Culture. 
Today, we're going to talk about diet culture lies, and I have curated a list of 10 because they seem to be the most common lies that I hear students talk about, that I hear clients bring to my attention, or that I just see kind of in mainstream social media. The thing with diet culture is it's loud, it's pervasive, and it's really often, most often promoted by individuals who are not heavily credentialed. Um, they are not scientists, and they really have a very limited understanding of human physiology and, and what it takes to be fit and well. So the 10 diet culture lies that I want to focus on today really are all about the purpose of them, I should say, is, is really about trying to teach people how to recognize them when they come in contact with them. And the lies are pretty common across all like types of diets, all across different types of dieting platforms. Um, these are kinds of, kind of the messages that underpin those approaches. And I think people need to be aware of them. So we'll just jump right in. There's a list of 10. This is not an exhaustive list. Again, it just represents the most common. So the first one is food is good or bad. There's this dichotomous sort of thinking in diet culture, and it tends to want to lump foods into a good category or a bad category. Food is food, truthfully. It's, it's fuel. It carries a certain caloric content and nutrient profile, but it has no moral value. And as a physical being who burns energy just through the very essence of just being, you need food. Even on days you don't work out, you still need food. And really the better way to look at it is like within the nutrient profile. Yes, some foods are higher in calories and some are lower in calories. Like nuts and pizza are both high in calories. That doesn't mean that they're bad for you and they don't have a place in the diet. What we wanna be careful of though is eating too much of those processed like food-like items that come in like a bag or some sort of food form, um, but that aren't, aren't real foods or aren't closest to their natural state. Both foods, these so-called good and bad foods or these red and green foods, they, they all belong in a diet. They all fit in a diet. And in fact, the current dietary guidelines encourage Americans to customize and enjoy food and beverage choices that do align with those personal preferences, their cultural traditions, and any budgetary considerations they need to keep in mind. There's nothing about good or bad foods in the dietary guidelines. The second one is calories must be earned. You don't need to earn your food. Food does, is not need, need to be used as a reward, nor should it be used as a punishment on days that you don't move as much or move at all. What we want to focus on is staying within a reasonable caloric intake and, and focusing on honoring those hunger cues, which diet culture likes to mute by telling you, if you're hungry, drink water. No, if you're hungry, like get, get a little something to eat. That's your body's hunger cue. That's, that's your body telling you to, to eat something. So we don't need to earn our food. The third one is carbs are bad or inherently fattening. If somebody is not in a caloric surplus, meaning they're, they're not taking in more calories than they're burning, no one macronutrient, be it carbs, fat, or protein is inherently fattening. Diet, diet culture is really famous for its roller coaster occurrences of demonizing or promoting one macro over the other. First, we were fat shaming. We got to go with the low fat diet. Then we were lured into thinking, oh, it's protein. Protein is the key to everything. And then it was carbs are bad. So let's go with keto. 
And trying to keep up with all of these messages burns enough calories in and of itself. We need carbs to think, to perform high intensity activities, to simply exist. Your muscles are fueled with carbohydrates. So be aware of any diet that comes out and says, you need to cut this out. It's probably not a balanced approach. The fourth one goes along with number three, sugar is evil. Consumers tend to confuse the types of carbohydrates that are needed. So, you know, like in a, after an extremely strenuous competition, for example, yeah, we want some fast digesting and easily absorbable carbs to get on board to, to replenish glycogen. But the slower digesting carbs are more satiating. They have greater staying power, especially when we pair them with protein and healthy fat. They also carry fiber, which you need for digestive health and gut health. The, the, the issue with sugar is if it's too much added sugar and it is, it is overshadowing the other components of your diet. So that's really when a problem will surface because we want to, we want to stabilize blood sugar. We don't want to have these extreme highs and, and low lows. We want to enjoy it in moderation. So really that means about 10% or less of your daily caloric needs should come from that added sugar, not carbohydrates, added sugar. The fifth one, weight loss is always the goal. Diet culture likes to beat this drum over and over. You have to lose weight to feel good and be fit. It's not true. Bodies change over time. And the focus really needs to be more on optimizing personal wellness and bringing harmony to all aspects of a person's life, not just losing weight. The sixth one goes along with that one. Being thin or buff solves, solves your issues. That's what diet culture promotes. Like all of these quote unquote, beautiful, thin or buff people. Look how happy they are. It solves all your problems. No, there's actually no research to back that up either. So being thinner or taller or more defined or bigger muscles is not a cure for any ailment a person is, is experiencing if the root of that ailment is not addressed. Like if it's mental health problems, if it's stress, if it's an unhappy family home. The seventh one is weight is a measure of both health and self-worth. Diet culture is inherently focused on that stinking number on the scale. And it's such flawed thinking because a person's weight reflects their relationship with gravity. That's it. Nothing more, nothing less. Weight doesn't highlight other important aspects like metabolic health, strength, endurance, balance, mobility, stability, mental health, all of those aspects. So that is certainly something to consider is that if you're coming across a message that's like, well, how much did you weigh this morning? Or you should weigh yourself every day. It's, it's, some, it's time to trash that and move on. Number eight, this is another example of that diet culture dichotomous thinking. Gaining weight is bad and losing weight is good. <clears throat> it, it has no moral value. We gain, we lose, we plateau. That's just part of being human. The point at which we really grow concerned is if we see that kind of creeping weight gain over time and there are adverse health issues that are cropping up but there's really no good and bad, but there are patterns we can identify and then help us design and, and implement specific interventions to change the course of that pattern. The ninth one, thinner people are happier people. There is absolutely no scientific evidence that tells us that if a, that a person's thinness equates to their happiness, the thinner you are, the happier you are, or the bigger you are, the happier you are. Um, there's, you will not find any evidence on this. So that's just a straight up lie. And then the final one, your worth is reflected by your food choices. 
I saved this one for last because I always find there's an inherent judgment that exercise professionals such as myself face. Either that judgment comes internally from our own monologues or externally from observers. But for example, if I go out to dinner once a month, sometimes I order a salad with grilled chicken with oil and vinegar. Sometimes it's a cedar plank salmon and veggies. Other times I enjoy a good burger or pizza, or maybe it's a great pasta dish. Food is not good or bad. It's food. And you, your worth is not reflected in the choices that you make. And really the message in all of these, these lies, these diet culture myths is that it's all about image and restriction in diet culture. And any valid scientific approach to health and fitness is rooted in behavior change, balance, and harmony. Instead of that restrictive mentality, we focus on bringing something more to the table. So is there a way to balance that exercise routine? Is there a way to add a fruit to a person's overall intake? That's really where the power is, is bringing balance to those dimensions and, and not about restricting or taking away. It's again, not about the body. We wanna focus on the relationship we have with our own body. So those are the top 10 myths that I, that I hear constantly. And I hope you found this episode helpful and I look forward to talking with you again.